0: We have two passages this morning. Our first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1-8. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which, you also, which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain unto now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." Now Acts 1, 1 through 11. The first account I composed, to Theopolis, about all that Jesus began to do and teach unto the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive, after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the this glorious day that we rep, that we are remembering today, the resurrection, when you arose from the dead and are now seated at the right hand of of the Father. Father, we pray that as we listen to your word, that we will receive it as your word and that we will be obedient to it. We pray for Tom that the Holy Spirit would speak through him and that he would give the word faithfully and that you would empower him as he speaks. Thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother.
1: Good morning and happy Resurrection Day. The song we just uh, did, Glorious Day, of course, it's it's based on the old hymn, One Day. And uh, I had a, a dear aunt, uh, Aunt Charlotte, who... Uh, that, who loved that song? That was her, her f- favorite hymn. she She taught junior high Sunday school, junior high girls' Sunday school. actually, no, more specific. seventh grade girls' Sunday school for 40 years. She taught three generations of girls, and, and that was that song uh, I, I, it, that song's always been dear to me because of uh, of her. Uh, And then when Casting Crowns redid it, I just fell in love with it again. I think they did a marvelous job. Uh, All right. Let's talk about what's at stake in the resurrection. I'm going to start there. How often in a, a global conflict in which millions of lives are at stake, does one of the warring factions lay out for the enemy exactly where to attack in order to ensure that that enemy will have victory? How often does that happen? That'd be pretty bad strategy, right? Well, that is in effect what the apostle Paul does in First Corinthians 15, just a few verses after the ones that that our brother Paul just read. Uh, he says he, he says without any uh, without any compromise. That the entire Christian faith stands or falls on the validity, the historical truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just that, that one core premise of the Christian faith, everything rides on that. If that, if Jesus was in fact raised from the dead, it changes everything. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our Paul's preaching and our faith is empty. It has nothing to 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 bind itself to. And he even he he actually says it's worse than that. He says if we if we have believed this gospel message, and Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are of all people on earth most to be pitied. I've heard dear brothers and sisters say, you know, if we turned out to be wrong, at least we we lived a better life than than what the world tends to live. That's not what Paul says. Paul says if we turned out to be wrong, we are most to be pitied. We squandered our lives. We wasted our lives. I was talking to my wife yesterday. She said, you know, if if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the golden rule is, is not worth any more than any other rule. Being, you know, loving to people, being kind to people, it's like, why not just do what serves you? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying everything rides on this. And so the task of any opponent of Christianity is actually very, very simple. It's not easy. In fact, it's impossible. But it's very simple. Just disprove the resurrection of Jesus. What's at stake in the resurrection of Christ is absolutely everything. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus is proof of life. It is proof of the indestructible, eternal life of Jesus, and it is proof that those who trust in Jesus also have eternal and indestructible life given in him and by him. Now, uh, that means, of course, that if agnostics are right, that... Any claim that we make that uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead, it really, it still doesn't matter if you can't know that it's true. So I want to suggest this. The resurrection of Jesus, the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus comes with a corollary that's just as important, and that is that the resurrection of Jesus is provable, that it's knowable. Because if you can't know that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead, then... He might as well not have been. And that is where we're going to spend a lot of time today because the Bible itself devotes a great deal of focus and intensity to declaring to humanity that the resurrection of Jesus is a provable historical reality. Unlike so many religions that are contrived by men, Christianity is not merely merely a a set of philosophical propositions. It's not just some rules of life that will make, make your life go better. Christianity stands or falls on its claims regarding the historical intervention of the Creator in His creation to make Himself known and to save sinners. If God did not, in fact, accomplish in history what the Bible says Jesus did, then Christianity, the, all the platit, the rest would be platitudes. The rest would be worthless. Now, in First Corinthians fifteen, right after pointing that out with no compromise, that that's what hinges. That's what rests on the on the resurrection. Paul then hits us with another uncompromising declaration. In verse twenty, he says, "But now." Christ has been raised from the dead. And he knew that. He knew that to be true because he had seen the resurrected Christ. We're going to talk a little more about Paul's story in a minute. But, but meeting the resurrected Christ just transformed, changed everything for Paul. So he knew whereof he spoke. Paul knew that the provability of that declaration that Christ was, was raised from the dead would determine whether the good news that, that he was in the process of spreading throughout the Roman Empire would either wither on the vine or it would succeed in laying claim to countless hearts and lives. All that hinges on the resurrection. And, and how did it turn out? Wildfire. Wildfire. I, I think often a, a book that I read when I was a younger believer, F.F. F. Bruce's book called The Spreading Flame it's about the the astonishing impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first generation and afterward uh, after Jesus died and was raised from the dead um, wildfire and that, that 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 spreading flame that just that spread like a like a forest fire across across the whole roman empire did so because the central claim of the gospel is both provable and proven. Now, I should mention that the proof is not enough to save anyone. Um, because of the depravity of our hearts, the unsaved human heart, doesn't matter how compellingly you prove something about Jesus unless the Holy Spirit lays hold of that heart, and convinces the person that the proof is is true. But but where where a lot of people mess this up is they think that means that Christianity is a leap of faith. It is not. There's nothing about Christianity that's a leap of faith. The only reason that we are are so resistant to the truth that God has proven (laughs) is because we're rebels against God. It's not because the proof isn't there. Here's the simple reality, brothers and sisters. Any person who objectively examines the evidence that God has laid before all of humanity can come to only one conclusion, and that's that Jesus was indeed crucified, died, buried, and was raised from the dead. Uh, That's where we're going to spend some time. Now, so, okay, how can we know that? How can we know that? that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. We're going to look at at a a series of historical facts, and there's, there's actually one we're going to add to this. Jesus' death and resurrection were foretold. Second, many people watched Jesus die. Third, that's not up here, it'll be up here in a second, the tomb was empty on the third day. Fourth, many people saw the resurrected Jesus, and fifth, the gospel spread like wildfire because of all those other things. First, the first historical fact is that Jesus' death and resurrection were foretold. Now, attorneys presenting court cases don't generally get to appeal to evidence of the thing that they're trying to prove that existed hundreds of years ago. But, but when the issue on the table is the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get to appeal to that evidence as well. Because God was talking about the death, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners hundreds, many hundreds of years before, before it happened. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 53, one of the most stunning passages in the Bible, written about 700 years before Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled it, God declares that the man he he names as my servant, will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But first, he will be humbled more than any man. He will be humiliated. He will be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But then he goes on and says, he will bear the penalty for sinners. He will, he, by his scourging, we will be healed. He will take the place of of people who deserve God's judgment and condemnation. He will suffer. He will be pierced. He will die. And then it it says, though he was assigned a grave with with criminals, he's buried with a rich man. And that's exactly what happened. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich ruler of the Jews. And then... Verses 10 and following of Isaiah 53 says that because he rendered himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. The Father will prolong his days and the good pleasure of God will prosper in his hand. Now, how, is, how does that happen? If you died and you're buried and and you have your days prolonged, how does that happen? And that's resurrection. And then, and then, this and then Isaiah 53 goes on and it says, Then he will be exalted to his rightful place of glory. Uh, he will share the spoils of a, of a, a victory uh, that he has won for all of us. 700 years before Christ came. In Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3... We find that when Paul would travel from synagogue to synagogue in the Roman Empire, that was always the first place he went was the Jewish synagogue. And when he did, it says that that he would spend a few Sabbaths reasoning with the Jews there from the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that, quote, the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying that this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. See, the gospel... The gospel was laid out for us long before it ever was fulfilled. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was all laid out before it ever happened. And then even while Jesus was here on earth, he repeatedly told his disciples, as Luke records in 922, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. pretty specific. So historical fact one, Jesus' death and resurrection were foretold. Historical fact two, many people watched Jesus die. There are a couple of threads of Muslim tradition that say that God would never allow one of his faithful prophets like Jesus to suffer such an ignoble death to be mocked and spat upon and tortured and then crucified. Apparently, they, they haven't actually read the Old Testament because God's prophets suffered the most heinous things all the time. I, I My wife said yesterday, it's hard to find a place in the Old Testament where a prophet had a good day. One of the one of the Muslim uh, propositions is that Simon of Cyrene, the man who helped Jesus carry, you know, whom the Romans conscripted to help Jesus move the cross through the streets, that that uh, God confused the minds of the Roman soldiers so they thought they were crucifying Jesus, but they actually crucified Simon. Zero evidence. Just the just this is their declaration because. In the Quran, Muhammad said that Jesus did not, in fact, die on the cross. So others say that it was Barabbas. Again, zero evidence. Just, uh, just a proclamation that depends on the, on the trustability of one, one sinful human being. Now, nobody at the time that Jesus died actually was disputing that he died. You ever think about that? The Jews didn't dispute the death of Jesus. The Romans didn't dispute the death of Jesus. Tacitus, a Roman historian and senator who wrote in the generation just after the disciples, speaks of the execution of one called Christus at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. That's the Latin version of Pontius Pilate. One of the only references to Pilate in the Bible actually refers to the fact that he executed Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, outside the Bible refers to the fact that he executed Jesus. Now, here's the deal. Countless people watched Jesus die. You guys know about the pilgrimage feasts, right? Three times each year, the Jews from all over the Roman Empire would come to the one place, the central sanctuary in Jerusalem. I think it's amazing that, you know, in 70 AD that that temple was Destroyed, but when when Jesus came, it was still intact. And the Jews would come three times a year from wherever they lived. They would come, and they would they would observe these three big feasts. And a couple of those feasts actually lasted nearly a whole month. One of them was this one in the first the first month, the Passover. The Passover. The uh, average population of the city of Jerusalem at that time when there was not a feast going on, is estimated to be around 50,000 people. But the population during the feasts is conservatively estimated to be between 300,000 and 500,000 people. Josephus actually puts that number, the Jewish historian Josephus puts that number in the millions. And if you say, well, how could one city put up with that big a population change? Well, the the simple truth, if you you look at the information about what was going on at those festivals, people came from all over and they camped everywhere they could find a piece of ground. They set up tents. You you know, when Jesus goes out in the wilderness and there's 5,000 men there waiting to be fed, that's just the men. Probably 20 plus thousand people were there in the feeding of the 5,000, those people were there in, out in the wilderness around Jerusalem because they were there for the Passover. I mean, they were there for, for a festival. There were different festivals that they came for. But they were there for a Passover, okay? Uh, in this, at this point, they are there for the Passover. The point I want to make here is that God orchestrated things so that at the time that Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the city of Jerusalem was overflowing with humanity. And if you consider the fact that, that at the triumphal entry of Jesus on that Palm Sunday, there had been such a spectacle. You know, God, the, this guy had been doing all kinds of miracles. Everyone was talking, and they were all there, you know, in crowds welcoming him into the city. If, if, if there was such a spectacle when that man came into the city, imagine what it must have been like when he was crucified. In case you didn't know this, Romans didn't crucify people privately. Crucifixions were supposed to be their deterrence against any resistance to the authority of Rome. And so they crucified people, and they wanted as many people to watch as possible. And there were more people in the city at that point than at any other time in in the year except the other two festivals. And then how long do you suppose it took for the word of Jesus' empty tomb to spread across that same multitude? (laughs) Let me ask you, does, does sensational news spread faster or slower when people are packed into small spaces like sardines? Countless people watched Jesus die, people from all over the empire. Historical fact number three, the body of Jesus did not stay in the tomb. After Jesus uh, started, well, let me back up a little. Uh, Okay, if the the claim of an empty tomb had been false, uh, how hard do you suppose it would have been to disprove it? Just open the tomb... Take the, they had separate coverings over the head. Just pull off the head coverings and see if, if it's the wrong person, like the Muslims are saying, and that's easy to verify. If there is somebody in the tomb, that's real easy to verify. Nobody at that time was disputing that the tomb was empty, they were all just trying to explain why it was empty. And imagine how somebody would have been rewarded if they could have proven to the Jewish and Roman authorities what happened to the body of Jesus. After Jesus started showing up in public following his crucifixion, uh, again, if, if, if someone was still in the tomb, those same authorities would have been eager to prove that. <laughs> and if, the, if there was an imposter, they would have been eager to prove that. But the only record at that time of any direct effort to refute the Christian account of the resurrection was that in the final chapter of Matthew's gospel, Matthew says that some of the soldiers assigned to guard the tomb came to the chief priests by night and reported that the tomb was empty. And then it says the priests paid them, quote, a large sum of money to report that the disciples of Jesus had come by night and stolen the body while... The soldiers were sleeping on the job. The simple fact is that the body of Jesus was not in the tomb. It's only, it's only much, a much later contrivance of people who try to, to declare that, that it was. Uh, and by the way, as, as for which tomb, you know, in case somebody was looking in the wrong tomb, it's the one where the guards had been standing for a couple of days. Historical fact number four, many, many people saw the resurrected Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke says that for a period of 40 days, Jesus presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. That word convincing means compelling. It means this would hold up in a court of law like gangbusters. It means it's not reasonable not to believe this. Many compelling proofs. In an article that Justin Taylor posted on the Gospel Coalition site uh, a couple of weeks ago, he, he gave this little list that I liked. He said, Jesus appeared not just once, but many times. Not just in one place, but in many places. Not just to one person, but to many people. Not just to individuals, but to groups, and not just to believers, but to unbelievers. It was an equal opportunity manifestation of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul actually includes those appearances as part of the essential gospel message. After Jesus died for our sins, after Jesus was buried, And after Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Old Testament prophets had foretold, then Jesus also appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, Paul said, at the time of his writing. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul. You guys know Paul never got to meet Jesus before he was resurrected. Paul met the resurrected Jesus. At the beginning of this message, I said that the historical provability of Jesus' resurrection is as indispensable as the fact of the historical fact of his resurrection, I say that based on what the Bible itself declares. God goes to great lengths in his word to make it clear that the evidence was overwhelming that these things happened. They were foretold. They were witnessed by countless people. They were confirmed and corroborated in every conceivable way. The evidence is compelling. Jesus was raised from the dead. The final historical fact is the, is the spreading flame, <laughs> and we could talk about that for a long time. But I just want to—I just want to again make this point: within the first generation of the church, in a time when it gained those who declared these historical truths, absolutely nothing that people desire, but instead gain them everything that people don't desire. When when those who spoke up and said, we saw him crucified and we saw him after he was raised, those people were laying their lives on the line to make that proclamation. Very many of them, lost their reputations, they lost their families, they lost their freedom, and more than a few lost their lives. And in a very short period of time after the death of Christ, there were Christians being used as fuel. Their bodies were placed in the streets of Rome and lit up so that they could they could cast light on the streets. There were Christians being fed to lions in amphitheaters as a spectator sport to entertain people. They were blamed for for setting fire to Rome and causing catastrophic damage to very many people's businesses and lives. They were despised, but they didn't stop proclaiming what they had seen. They didn't stop. There have been quite a number of people in history, uh, in the history of the church since then, who, when they go back and examine what happened in the Roman Empire in that time, that's when God lays hold of them and they become Christians. Sir Lou Wallace, who who wrote the book Ben Hur that became a movie, um, he he was kind of a marginal, you know about. His faith in Christ before he started to investigate the time, and before he finished his book, he put Jesus in the thick middle of the book because he realized that the impact that Jesus had had in that era was incontrovertible. It was overwhelming. It changed the world. Josh McDowell was an atheist, and one of the things that one of the things that God used to turn his heart to receive Christ was as he examined, the, he examined the transformation that happened in the Roman Empire because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Frank Morrison, who wrote the book Who Moved the Stone, same story, an atheist who examined what happened in the Roman Empire after Jesus died and was raised, and he said, I cannot deny this. This is true. That list is much longer the spreading flame is one of the most profound proofs of the truth of the gospel. And my favorite my favorite individual story of that proof is the Apostle Paul. Here you have a man who was more zealously committed to the traditions of his, of his Jewish forefathers than anybody else around. He was so zealously committed that he had, made it his, he had made it his life's work to seek out Christians and bring them in chains back to Jerusalem so that they could be tried before the Sanhedrin, the same council that had, that had seen to Christ's crucifixion, and hopefully killed. That was, Paul says, that that's what he hoped for, that they would be killed. He was probably the single most militant opponent of Jesus Christ in his day. And he was, as he was, with, with papers authorizing him to arrest more Christians, as he was walking from Jerusalem to Damascus, the, Lord, the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to him and blinded him so that he could see. And he turned the heart of that man in an instant, and then he used that, he used that, militant opponent of the gospel as one of the most mightily used instruments for the expansion, for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. Probably most of the people sitting in this room owe their salvation to the work that God did that started with Paul in the Gentile world. That's what happens when God pierces a heart so that 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 heart and that mind actually reckon with the evidence that God has set forth. And when God does that, you can't get away from it. The last thing I want to mention is this, this question, and that is what will you do with God's compelling witness to his son? I can tell you that if you're if you are in the place where you actually want to know whether that witness is true, whether these events in fact happen, that's the work of God. If you honestly want to know, that's already the work of God. So you're in a really good spot. And if you do, then go look at the evidence. And in honesty before God, bow down before him and say, ask the God who created you to show you what is true about Jesus Christ, and he will not disappoint. Jesus said, no one comes to me except that the Father leaves. And he also said, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you from the eternal judgment that you deserve from the hand of our perfectly holy God, as the one who... who walked for 33 years on this earth sinless and went to a cross to pay in your place the penalty that you deserved and then was raised from the the grave on the third day and 40 days later ascended back to his rightful glory. If you have not trusted in him, may today, may this resurrection day be the day of your salvation. He's coming back. That passage in Acts says that just as he rose up from the ground and ascended into heaven, he's going to come in the reverse of that process. The same way you saw him leave, he's going to come again. And that, beloved, will be the final proof of life. And after that, your option, your opportunity, let me put it that way, your opportunity to put your faith in him will be done. Every knee will bow before him, willingly or unwillingly, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. May today, may today be the day of your salvation. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the the indescribable gift of eternal life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. We thank you that not only did Jesus come and fulfill all that the prophets foretold about his first coming in fine detail, but Father, we thank you that you saw to it that the, that the evidence, the witness for each of these historical truths was overwhelming, overwhelming. Father, we pray that you would use us to keep proclaiming what your children, your faithful ones, proclaimed even to their deaths in that first generation, because this is the greatest news of all. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.